Good morning, church. Well, uh, since I knew that today we'd be doing uh, two lessons in our Christian growth groups, I figured that it might not be a bad idea to preach a short sermon today. Um, so please stay with me, and I pray that our time together in God's Word will be edifying for us all. Uh, actually, on that note, let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you, Lord, for who you are. We thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. Lord, I pray that you would be with me today as I preach, uh, that you would free me from any distractions, nerves, or anything else, and that you would be with those who hear, Lord, who you want to hear, that you would free them from distractions. Lord, I pray that your word would accomplish the purpose for which you have given. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew and to chapter 13. Today, we will be studying together the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great value found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. I started studying these parables a little over a month ago after watching an online video of a well-respected Sudanese theologian leading a Bible study on these two parables and interpreting them in a way that I had never heard before. Um, after doing some reading in several commentaries, I discovered that his interpretation is shared by other theologians as well. Now, before we read our text and discuss how these uh, two parables should be interpreted and applied to our lives, I want to set the stage by doing two things. First, I want to answer the questions, who was Matthew writing to, and what was his purpose for writing this gospel? The second thing that I want to do after we answer these questions is to remind us of what Matthew has communicated about Jesus to his readers so far in his gospel. So, let's start with our questions. Who was Matthew writing to and what was his purpose for writing this gospel? According to church tradition and the general agreement of most biblical scholars and commentators, Matthew wrote this gospel to Jews who converted to Christianity. And he did this in order to confirm to and encourage these believers in their faith. Matthew did this by trying to prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah and is the Savior whom they have been longing and waiting for. Matthew also wrote to provide guidance regarding how these believers should live. Some have even called Matthew's gospel a manual for discipleship. We can definitely say more, but we have to move on. So let's quickly summarize what Matthew has communicated about Jesus to his readers so far in his gospel. Since I'm assuming that we're all somewhat familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, this will be a very brief summary. So Matthew has already given his readers the genealogy of Jesus. He also introduced them to the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, which demonstrate the authority of Jesus. Remember when Jesus was done teaching, the crowds remarked that no one taught with authority like Jesus. He also recounted some of the miracles of Jesus, which demonstrate the power of Jesus over nature, calming the storm, over diseases, healing those sick with various types of diseases, over his spiritual power over the devil, casting out demons, 
and even his power over death, raising a young girl from the dead. So this has been a quick summary up to chapter 13. Now we come to chapter 13, which contains seven parables about the kingdom of heaven. Our two parables are numbers five and six in the order of these seven parables. And of these seven parables in this chapter, Jesus explained three. The parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, or as some Bibles title it, tares among the wheat, and the parable of the net, which is the last parable in this chapter and is the one directly following our two parables. Out of the four parables that Jesus does not explain or that Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, chose not to record any explanation for, the two parables that we, would look, that we will look at today are the ones where the differences in interpretation seem to be the most drastic. So with that long introduction out of the way, let's read the text um, for this morning. And uh, it's again in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So as we see, these parables are very succinct and they're very easy to understand. That's of course until the commentators show up and start debating. So if you remember a few minutes ago, I, met, I referenced a Bible uh, study led by a Sudanese theologian, which included an interpretation for these two parables that I had never heard before. For the remainder of this sermon, I will refer to this interpretation as the new interpretation, simply because it was new to me. Again, let me remind you that there are some commentaries which adopt this new interpretation as well. Now, according to the new interpretation, the man who buys the field in our first parable is the Lord Jesus himself. While the field represents the world and the treasure represents either the nation of Israel or the church, which the Lord Jesus bought with his blood. To argue against the traditional interpretation, which sees the man as representing the believer and the treasure as representing Jesus and his kingdom, the new interpretation commentators ask a rhetorical question. What can we personally sell to buy the kingdom of heaven? Of course, the answer to this rhetorical question is that we cannot sell anything to buy the kingdom. In fact, you cannot purchase the kingdom. We know that salvation does not work this way. Now, with this rhetorical uh, question in place, these interpreters then proceed to employ proof texts and general biblical truths to support this interpretation. So they explain that God spent his son on the cross to buy the world, the field in our parable, and that the church or Israel is the Lord's treasure. They then explained that the blood of Christ was the price that was paid for this transaction. They also used scripture like Exodus chapter 19 verse 5, where God speaking to the nation of Israel says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. 
From this verse, they make two observations. First, all the earth belongs to the Lord. In this parable, the entire field belongs to God. The second observation that they make is that although God owns the whole field, he nonetheless has a treasured possession. In the Old Testament, the treasured possession referred to the people of Israel if they obeyed his voice and kept his covenant. And in the New Testament, this treasured possession is the people of God who hear his voice, obey his commandments, and persevere until the end. They then follow a similar logic when interpreting the parable of the pearl of great value. They say that the merchant in our second parable represents Jesus also, that the great pearls, plural, represent individual believers, and that the great pearl, singular, represents the church corporately, and that the price paid represents Jesus giving his very life on the cross. In support of this interpretation, they point to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, a verse which teaches us that Jesus, although rich, became poor for our sake. Now, I must admit that this new interpretation of these two parables is interesting, to say the least. But the key question is, is it faithful to the text? Well, let's quickly review the traditional interpretation which I, and I'm assuming most of you, were taught. And then let's see which interpretation better fits the context of the text and of Matthew's Gospel as a whole. So again, according to the traditional interpretation, the man and the merchant represent the believer who upon encountering the Lord Jesus Christ forsakes everything because he or she realizes that Christ's kingdom is the ultimate treasure and that the kingdom of heaven is like that pearl of great value. Where if you possess it by faith and childlike commitment to Christ, you do not need anything else. Now, the new interpretation camp finds this interpretation or this traditional interpretation problematic. They ask, for example, why would the believer hide the kingdom of heaven? If you understand the parable to be that way. Where are we instructed in the Bible to hide Jesus or to hide the gospel or to hide the kingdom of God? But according to their reckoning, the new interpretation camp, the concept of hiding the treasure in the first parable is not problematic at all because they see the hiddenness in the first parable as referring to us being hidden in Christ, which is something that the Bible does describe, as we read in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. They also have an issue with the traditional interpretation of the parable of the pearl of great value, because they say, wait a minute, sinners never seek Christ but it is always Christ who seeks sinners. So again, which is it? Is the church the treasure and the pearl of great value? Or is Christ and his kingdom the treasure and the pearl of great value? Now, whether or not I've been charitable to both views, I will let you decide. Uh, but now it's time for me to tip my hat and show you why I personally favor the traditional interpretation, uh, which sees the pearl and the treasure as the Lord Jesus and his kingdom. And I personally favor this traditional interpretation because I think it better fits the context. Now, first, let me show you why the new interpretation misses, misses the point of these parables. 
I think one of the ways that the new interpretation camp goes wrong is that they try to press the details of these parables too far. In fact, if we go along with their way of interpreting these parables, then even their own interpretation of these parables falls apart. Let me give you an example. A minute ago, I mentioned that they think it is wrong to say that sinners seek after God like the merchant seeks after the pearl of great value. But isn't it equally wrong to say that Christ, according to their interpretation, just happened to stumble upon a treasure? Whether they interpret that treasure to be the nation of Israel or the church, it's inconsequential. By the same token, is Christ, is Christ searching for a pearl of great value, or has he predestined us for salvation from before the foundations of the world, as we learn in Ephesians chapter 1? So to use the approach employed by the new interpretation theologians does damage to their own interpretation before it undermines the traditional interpretation. Now let me show you the strength of the traditional interpretation by looking at how it takes the context of these parables into consideration. Both in the preceding parable of the weeds as explained in verses 36 to 42 and the parable that follows our two parables, the parable of the net, verses 47 to 50, the emphasis is on how both good and evil grow together, and then, at the end of the age, the evil is cast in the fiery furnace, in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The weeds and the good seed grow together, but at the end of the age, there is a sorting between the good and the evil. And the parable shows how horrible it is for the person who is evil. But conversely, we are told in verse 43 that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Likewise, in the parable of the net, again, verses 47 to 50, the net represents the close of the age. And the angels will sort the good fish and they will throw away the bad fish. Now, our two parables are in between the explanation of the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net. The question that naturally arises is why? Why did Matthew place our two parables in this specific location? I think it is to show what a genuine believer looks like and to emphasize the reward of those who in childlike faith accept Christ and embrace his kingdom. If you will, it is to show what a good seed looks like, or what a good fish looks like, to use the language of the other parables. Our parables show us what a genuine believer looks like by showing us how a saved person responds to the gift of his salvation. Once saved, a true Christian genuinely believes that the kingdom of heaven is indeed his treasure, and he counts everything else as worthless. Like Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now Paul's emphasis is on Christ. Because without faith in Christ, no one enters the kingdom of heaven where Christ himself reigns. I believe that the traditional interpretation also fits better with Matthew's purpose for writing his gospel. Remember, we said that 
His, this gospel was intended to confirm and encourage these Jewish converts in their Christian faith by demonstrating that Jesus is indeed their long-awaited Messiah and Savior and to provide a manual for discipleship. We actually see all these elements in our parables, but only if we follow the traditional interpretation. Matthew, Matthew is showing these new believers that Jesus is superior to their old Jewish traditions and that they can indeed, like the Apostle Paul, whom we mentioned uh, uh, a minute ago, forsake and sacrifice everything for the sake of following their Messiah. Not only does Matthew insist on the surpassing value of Christ, but he shows them that this sacrifice, though expected of them, will be more than worth the cost, which must have been encouraging to them as new believers. Also, all this is built on what he has already communicated about Jesus. Because you cannot really understand or even talk about the kingdom of heaven without knowing the king to whom you must pay allegiance. Matthew could not demand this kind of commitment from these converts if Jesus was just another prophet. Rather, this level of commitment only works because he has shown that Jesus is God in the flesh. So to be willing to sacrifice everything for his sake is not a risk, but is rather the only safe thing to do. So now that I have defended the traditional view, at least to my own satisfaction, let me give us two words of warning and then look at how these parables apply to our lives. First, Notice that the traditional interpretation does not say that we can purchase our salvation. It only say, says that once we are saved, this salvation will be costly. Now, does the Bible teach that salvation will be costly? Of course it does. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 27, we read that Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So what are these verses telling us? What does it mean to take up our cross and follow him, or to lose our lives for Christ's sake? It means that we regard belonging to Christ to be of surpassing and immeasurable worth. It means that we believe that both the immediate and eternal reward of following faithfully after Christ is of much greater value than the false and perishing thrills of living to ourselves. Now, did the apostles believe this message? Well, we know that with the exception of the Apostle John, who was exiled to the island of Patmos, the rest of the apostles died horrible, gruesome deaths testifying to Christ. Some were crucified upside down, others were beheaded, and so on and so forth. They refused to pay allegiance to anyone but our Lord Jesus Christ. They counted Christ and faithfulness to him to be of far greater value than their own lives. I appreciate how one commentary put it. The kingdom of heaven is worth infinitely more than the cost of discipleship. And those who know where the treasure lies joyfully abandon everything else to secure it. So again, we cannot purchase 
our salvation, but our salvation is extremely valuable and is therefore worth any sacrifice we make. Now to the second word of warning. To say that our salvation is costly or that it requires sacrifice does not mean that these parables uh, teach us that we are saved by our works or that we must continue in our own effort to do good works in order to remain saved. Not at all. These parables are about the value of Christ and his kingdom and how a true believer responds. A genuine conviction results in action, even in the face of persecution or opposition. We even saw that in our lesson this morning. That's how true belief works. If we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then how we regard him and how we live will be radically changed. But if Jesus is just another pearl, or if he's just another treasure, then the things you have heard here today will either sound silly or they will sound extremely difficult. And you will leave here sad and sorrowful, like the rich young man we read about in Matthew chapter 19. And why was he sad and sorrowful? Because he was not willing to give up everything. He was not willing to give up his great possessions in order to follow Jesus. In addition to a radically changed life, I hope that you will take away three more things from this sermon by way of application. First, daily meditate on who Christ is and what he has done for you. And then ask yourself, is Christ my only treasure? Do thoughts of God and his kingdom fill your mind or are you more preoccupied with earthly things? If the spirit of the man and the merchant in these parables does not describe you, then ask yourself, where am I holding back? What am I not willing to sacrifice in order to be fully committed? Is it my comfort? Has comfort become my treasure and my pearl of great value? Is it my career? Is it my family? Is it my fill in the blanks? What is it that you value and what is it that you treasure? that is usurping the place of Christ in your life. If, if you are honest with yourself and you feel that there is something else, then do not despair. Simply repent and ask God to give you wisdom on how you should live. And remember, this is ultimately for your own good and for your own spiritual benefit. Second, are you joyful? Do you have joy in your life? Notice how in the parable of the hidden treasure we are told that the man in his joy went and sold all that he has and bought the field. Notice that here, as we find elsewhere in the Bible, the idea of sacrifice is not antithetical to joy. And because joy is one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, then a genuine believer will always have joy. And if not, then he will always be able to recapture that joy by turning his attention to Christ. So, are you joyful? Third and finally, notice the element of rest in the parable of the pearl of great value. Once the merchant found that great pearl, he sold all that he had and bought it. His search was over. We can say that he rested because he was no longer searching. Similarly, this is the experience of every true believer. For the believers here today, you know, you know this to be true from experience, don't you? And for those who are here today, 
who would not call themselves followers of Christ, I can tell you on the authority of God's word that you will not find rest until you know Christ. Saint Augustine, when proclaiming the greatness of the God whom we serve and whom we worship, he said this, Thou movest us to delight in praising thee, for thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. And in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus himself said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So are you resting in the finished work of Christ on the cross on your behalf? My prayer is that we would all lead radically changed lives, that we would daily meditate on the person and work of Christ, that we would always have joy and that we would all find the kind of rest that only Christ can give us. Let's pray.